Hi, I'm Keegan Flegner. I'm 17 years old, and I live in Santa Monica, California. When I was in first grade, I was diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum. Since that time, sports have played a huge role in changing my life. So I want to show the world how all kinds of sports can help all kinds of people with all kinds of mental and emotional challenges. Welcome to Sports on the Spectrum. My guest today is Dan Shaughnessy. Dan is a senior sports columnist for the Boston Globe, covering the Boston Red Sox since 1981, and is the author of several sports books, including The Curse of the Bambino, Francona, The Red Sox Years, and Senior Year, A Father, A Son, and High School Baseball. Dan has been voted one of America's top sports columnists by the Associated Press Sports Editors and was honored in 2016 by the Baseball Hall of Fame in receiving the J.G. Taylor Spink Award. Please join me in welcoming Dan Shaughnessy to Sports on the Spectrum. So I always like to start off my um, interviews with my guests um, by starting at the very beginning. Um, And by that, I mean like the beginning of their sports career and their sports life. And so I'll start off by asking the question I start off pretty much every interview I have here, which is, what are your very first memories of sport? And it doesn't even have to be playing them. It can be watching them, whatever. Uh, Yes, I'm the youngest of five children. I grew up in the early 60s. And uh, uh, my brother was a really good athlete. He was six years older. My sister was really good. I was going to their games as a a kid. And I think uh, probably coming home and, and reporting their games to my parents and just uh, I really got into it when I was about seven, eight years old, uh, reading and writing and playing and just very immersed in baseball and um, yeah, especially Major League Baseball in the early 60s when the Red Sox were not very good, but I was a little sponge and you kind of absorb a lot of information at that age. So it was a big jump start for me. I played sports through high school. I was varsity basketball, baseball. I wasn't very good, but I was on the teams and um, it was a jump start to, to know that I liked to read about it so much. And then eventually start, I was writing about it when I was in high school and kept doing that in college. And, and luckily, fortunately, been able to have a career doing it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's like, if you're doing all that, you know, through the course of growing up, it's like, it's bound to leave some, lead you somewhere. So for it to get you to the point you are now, I definitely think is something worth uh feeling good about. So, and I guess I'll um, continue on and ask you kind of a related question in a sense, but kind of a little stereotypical, I might say, but you know, I'm sure you get where I'm coming from here. And that is um, at the same time of growing up and having these, all these great memories of, you know, playing sports and watching sports and reporting sports. What were some of the specific uh, teams and maybe players that you followed growing up? And why was that the case? Well, uh, it was baseball was was very centric to me. Um, you know, the local basketball team, the Celtics, they won the championship every year of my youth. So that was, uh, you know, we had Bill Russell and Bob Cousy and and then John Havlicek and Sam Jones and on and on. And to have a team that won the championship every year, that was that kind of spoiled us for everything else. They were the only team in the region like that. The Patriots were kind of a joke. They were in the old AFL. Uh, the Bruins were never very good until Bobby Orr got here at the end of the decade. Um, and the Sox, they struggled. Uh, you know, they'd be 10-team league. They finished eighth or ninth, so that was a struggle. I just missed Ted Williams. I never saw him play. Carly Strumsky was a rookie my first year being a fan. But, yeah, those guys, like, you know, Yaz, Russell, uh, and eventually Bobby Orr. I was in high school by that time, but those were the guys – pay most attention to out of the gate. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I think for any kid growing up in New England at that time, these were the guys and the teams they loved following, you know, despite their varying levels of success and failure, you know, so it's like, as a result, you got to keep in mind um, where you came from, I guess, is what I'm getting at here. And as a result, the fact that um, there were all these individual guys who also stood out at the same time, I'm sure that made it all the more memorable. So I totally get where you're coming from right there. And I guess um, I'll kind of go back to your personal life a little bit here and ask you, because you mentioned that, you know, baseball was really your jig from the get-go. And I'll ask, as a young player, when you were playing it, whether it was in Little League, Pony League, or any other league, whatever, you know, what were some of your proudest or just favorite moments when playing um, in those leagues and in those games as a child? Yeah, so uh, Little League was a great experience for me. I was what, what they would call the majors, you know, the, the, the last three years, which would be in my case, I guess, fifth, sixth and seventh grade or fourth, fifth and sixth. But I remember, you know, you get bigger every year and then your 12 year little league year, you can hit the ball over the fence. So that's kind of a, it was a big thrill. I remember hitting a home run my first time up in my last year, little league. And I led the league in homers that year. I could hit homers. Um, so that was fun. It was fun to, to be part of that. And our team won the championship and our little town and all that stuff. So it was good to have that kind of success. Early. I, I had an issue, though, because my brother was so good. I was never going to be as good as him. And uh, that I figured that out when I was like in high school and I accepted it pretty early on. Everybody else kind of did, too. But those expectations, that was a little bit of a burden as a younger person because he was playing varsity baseball in the seventh grade and he ended up playing in the Cape league and he was really good. And, um, I, I had none of that. I was, I was very average, but I really liked playing. And so I made varsity baseball as a sophomore in high school. That was a thrill. I was playing every day and, and I was really excited to, to be able to do that. I, I loved it. And it was weird to be that active with it. And then just, it just goes away. Like I never played competitive after high school and, it's funny you spend so much time doing that until you're 18 and then then you never do it again basketball i loved i was a good shooter um again made varsity as a sophomore i never played we had guys much better than me and i but i didn't care i mean i accepted it it was fun being on the team we were good you ride the bus with the cheerleaders i i had all the trappings of the fun things about it and none of the pressure of having to to do it so, uh, cause I was like a garbage time guy on the basketball team the whole time. And, um, but it didn't, it didn't take that much away from the experience for me. Cause I, I accepted my mediocrity and, um, I was really happy to be part of the team and I was a good practice player. You know, I didn't complain. I, I was, uh, good, easy for the coach to have around in that sense. Yeah, no, listen, it's, it's actually really funny. You mentioned that because, I actually had my first um, high school basketball game with my varsity team in forever yesterday. And like you, I spent pretty much the entire game on the bench. It wasn't until yeah. the game was effectively over that I got on the floor. There but at go. the same time, I kept saying to both, you know, my dad and everybody else, I was like, Hey, this is, was one of the best experiences of my life, you know, because it's like, it's just such a joy to get to experience the idea of just being on this team and, you know, seeing the games and getting all the benefits of it and getting. To yeah. Practice. I think it's, I think it's good to, to, kind of have that acceptance and awareness early on. I mean, it's not capitulating a hundred percent. You always want to keep getting better, but I was also realistic enough to yes. know what my place was. I didn't have 
um, delusions of grandeur regarding my own abilities. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's like you're writing in a lot of sense. It's yeah. like, you're always realistic when it comes to, you know, Boston sports teams chances. It's like, you're never afraid to state <laughs> the obvious. So I think that makes um, your, your viewpoint all the more valuable, honestly. And I, I guess, appreciate um, that. yeah, no, you're welcome, man. Um, and I guess staying in the high school, but actually kind of shifting to somebody else's high school career in a sense, I want to talk specifically about one of your books. Now, obviously you've written a lot of them. A lot of them have had lots of success, you know, but one of them that particularly stood out to me was um, the book, one of the books that I mentioned earlier, which is senior year, a father, a son and high school baseball. And I'd, I'd be curious actually, if you could explain to our viewers who haven't read it or even heard of it per se, what is that book about? Because I think the story is actually quite interesting here. Well, thanks. It was one of those ones, you know, I was pretty, I have a kind of a house publisher by that time. I had done, I don't know, maybe 10 or more books. And, you know, I was able, usually it was me doing a book at the request of, of the publisher or whatever party wanted this book. And I was sort of a contract book player that way. I never really was charged up to do them that much, but this was one, it was my own initiative and they, they indulged me to do it. It was a low advance and I didn't really care. I just, I knew being a writer and, and one who, you know, when I kept a high school diary, I was such a cornball. So um, being a writer and then my daughters were both good athletes and played, you know, high school and, and a little college softball and, and their younger brother, you know, my only son, he's, he was a very good high school player, a very good little league. He, he was much better than me. He was more like my brother. And um, it was it was fun. And then he was getting recruited and, and he wasn't like a big stud guy or anything. In fact, physically, he's only like 5'10". So that that was just definitely a, a distant center for for the, the higher levels to go after him. But he was a very good high school player. And I've been around enough to know kind of what it, what he was and what he wasn't. Although you never really know with your own child. But I just. I knew I was going to miss it when he was no longer playing locally. And so I just, I, I cataloged his senior year of high school and it was a way, it was sort of a memoir for me, a way to tell my own high school stories and, and just sort of the, there's universal truths in a book like that because you don't want to make it about, Oh, is my kid great? Nobody wants to read that. Um, but if you can bring out the universal truths, like what it's like for parents to watch their children, what it's like for coaches to have a difficult player or, to manage all these personalities and just all the nonsense. And you think, you know, everything when you're that age and, and then reflecting on my own self from 35 years earlier into the, what was then the, the now of 2005 and six, and it was a fun way to kind of get out all my old guy stories and talk about my childhood and, and then through the prism of what was happening with my son. And then we had the additional part that he was good and he was being recruited and he, he got to go to Notre Dame on a recruiting visit and, and he just, he had success at that level um, that I never enjoyed. So, you know, in retrospect, I wasn't that sure it was a great thing to do to him. He was kind of a quiet kid and, and um, I don't think he ever would have objected. And I, he got to vet the whole thing and look at it before it was published. Everybody in the family did. Um, Cause I didn't want anybody saying, Hey, that's a family secret. You can't put that out there. Cause it was pretty, a lot of stuff was revealed in there. It was sort of personal nature, but I thought, and, and the response to that book, I wish I could have had more eyeballs on it, but it did get a lot of uh, like coaches and parents. The responses was wonderful in that book. Everybody who read it liked it. 
And that's unusual with my material because usually there's a half <laughs> of them just hate you out of the gate. So, and, and it was a nice experience. And I, I still worry about a little bit if it was fair to do to him, uh, to put, put him, put the eyeballs on him a little bit. And uh, he did not have a great college career. He had a, he had one pretty good season and, and kind of flamed out, but it was more, I think the, you know, he was playing division one, the ACC and it's just, you know, they were, you know, He's hitting against Matt Harvey and, and, you know, Strasburg and these guys. And it was, you know, it's, it's a little tougher than, so he reached the ceiling, but it got him into college. And that was, that was kind of fun. So anyway, uh, it's a hard book to describe as I just demonstrated, but it's, it, it was a good read. And I, I was pleased with, with the reception that it got. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, everything you said right there, it's like, I can, well, obviously I'm not drawing a, a, a total comparison. It's like the, the idea of the book to me relates into what I have to experience myself, specifically as your son right there, where it's like, I'm the person who, like you said, I feel like I know everything, but it's like, I'm still learning so <laughs> you much. You always do at your age. Oh yeah, yeah no. And, and I, and I, and the, and the nice part too, is I, like we were talking about being realistic. I totally understand that and embrace it at the same time. So it's like, you know, but I totally get where you're coming from there. And I guess I'll quickly ask too, as sort of a follow-up, I know you described a lot and what you took away from it all, but I guess I would ask like some of, what were some of your most gratifying or maybe challenging parts of being in that role when you were? Of the role of writing it or being the parent? Being the parent. Um, it was challenging, you know, if, if he wasn't taking care of business, like he wasn't being a good teammate and part of there. And I really bothered me. And I think part of that was he was always better as, as the um, when he was younger with older teammates who, you know, he, he wouldn't disrespect him or mouth off or think he was the big guy. But by the time he's a senior, then he is the big guy. And it didn't bring out the best in his personality. I didn't think, you know, toward the end, it gets a little better. He starts to give up some at-bats to kids that never get to play if they're way ahead. And I was happy to see that, but, I didn't like the misbehavior and, you know, the, the, the coach took away his captaincy for a while. Cause he was, you know, fighting with his teammates and just the immaturity and things there. And, and it was, um, so, you know, those, those were struggles. And as a parent, you know, you haven't been there, but it's, it's just, it's hard for parents. I mean, you know, there's parents have a, it's a hard job. Sometimes some people deal better with the physicality of little kids, and that you're tired all the time, but you can control them. And then, of course, when they're in high school, you can't control them, <laughs> and they're on their own. And that's it, that can be a mental uh, anguish uh, part of it. But overall, we were lucky that you know uh, things turned out pretty good for everybody. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's like you know everything you described that, that right there. I feel it's just part of the experience of growing up and just you know do, playing team sports and getting really good at it. You know, and starting to. Uh, get some real benefits from it too, in addition to what everybody gets. So as a result, I have to, you know, deal with all the, those uh, things happening at once as a parent, I'm sure is no easy feat. And for you to yeah. be able to handle it and later describe in what seems to be very great detail and, you know, relate the, I guess, level of relatability at the same time, you know, speaks to just um, how good you are at something like that. And how, how, what came of it that made it all the worthwhile too. So I, uh, I guess I applaud you again for that, but um, well, I think thanks now for reading it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess um, now actually I want to um, kind of shift gears here and talk about 
a little more of what you do now, actually, and kind of uh, relate to what I'm, I have you here for. Um, but before I do that, I want to give a shout out to one of our sponsors. Do you own a classic Mustang, Corvette, Camaro, or Chevelle from the 1960s or 70s? Does the clock in your dash keep accurate time? Do you want to get a new clock for your car, but you don't want to pay $200, $300, or even $500 for a new clock? Well, then go to ImpactAutoPartsStore.com for a brand new quartz clock that looks identical to the original and is powered by a single AA battery. All at prices less than half that of a restored clock or a reproduction. Go to the website, ImpactAutoPartsStore.com and keep on cruising. So now I want to start actually, normally I don't ask this question until much later in the interview, but because I have you here now, I guess I'll throw it out right away. Um, which, and this is a very simple question, but I'm sure you'll, you'll see quickly. It's a very hard one to answer at the same time, which is when you hear the term mental health, what pops into your head and what does it mean to you? Mental health? Mm -hmm. Well, um, my wife's a clinical psychologist, so okay. that's somewhat helpful that, you know, she's devoted her life's work to that and, mm -hmm. um, you know, sees patients and, and the process. And I think that I've learned a lot, um, more about that but man it's 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 such a wide open topic just that it's it's super important and it's nice that in in 2021 there's just more uh, it's more accepted it's it's less stigmatized if people are seeking help or or, um, or need help and I think that those are good things and people you know growing up when I grew up it, it was a stigma and it's kind of like hidden and scorned and and I think it's nice that that people today can be a little more out front with that and not be uh, feel embarrassed about it or, or whatnot. So clearly very important. And during a pandemic more so probably and so much going on. And I, I feel very badly for people your age and, and anybody in you know high school or college. It's just, you guys are getting screwed during this, this pandemic in a way that I don't feel that the little kids or that the you know old people like me are affected the way you guys are. I think if this had happened to me when I was a senior in high school, it, that would have been, I would have been very dark and it would have been soul crushing for me to lose, to lose those times. Yeah, no, I mean, obviously this pandemic has only made this situation, I'm not going to say more dire, but it's made it more prevalent for, for absolutely certain. And it's also, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned your wife is a clinical psychologist because I actually had one on my previous episode. And we talked all about that kind of stuff you mentioned, which is like, you know, the effects the pandemic is having, sure. what, you know, you've learned from an experience like that, you know, and all the takeaways you've gotten from it. So as a result, I myself and a lot of other people have definitely seen this pandemic as a way of building more insight into this just in general. And I guess kind of building off of uh, what you said and how it's becoming a lot more easier to talk about it now. One of the reasons I'm I'm so excited to have you on here in the first place is that you've covered Boston sports teams, which first of all are among my personal favorites. Um, but also throughout your career, you've interacted with a lot of athletes as a journalist. And I would imagine that at least some of those athletes you've confided in, um, they have been more open about something like this, while others maybe have avoided sharing anything at all. And so without re revealing anything confidential, because that's not the point of this, you know, how often do you yourself find athletes or interact with athletes who voluntarily share this stuff with you or that they or someone close to them, you know, might be dealing with something related to mental health or just whatever? Oh, it's a good question. And I'm 
I'm probably not the best one to answer that because, um, I mean, I was a beat reporter for covering the Baltimore Orioles, the Boston mm-hmm. Celtics, the Boston Red Sox, about 12 years altogether where I was every day with the one team. And again, traveling with them, buses, hotels, waiting for bags, just living with them. So in, in that instance, I got to know guys much better. And um, that sort of removed as I got older and became a columnist, not around the teams. They don't really know you. You're not traveling with. Um, and it's more of a, a hit and run, just drive-by stuff. And as a columnist with opinions and being pretty critical and just what I consider to be neutral, but it's perceived as negative, um, not really trusted. So, so I'm not going to have guys confiding. There are people that are really good. One of the masters of that is Jackie McMullen, who works with Sports Illustrated. And she's about 10 years younger than me, but we worked together a lot, a long time. And, and I think um, she's just got a real good ear and sensitivity and where athletes didn't think she was you know, going to betray them whatever. I never, I didn't have much of that. Um, maybe early on when I was closer to the age of the athletes and I was traveling with them, there would have been more instances, you know, you'd be drinking with guys and it'd be more confiding or late night stuff and you know, stuff you wouldn't use. Um, but by and large, because of uh, my personality and my job description and the way I go about it and the re- removal of the, of the travel with the teams, it never became an issue. I didn't have anybody really bearing their souls or, or telling me a lot of, a lot of deep down stuff. Yeah, no. And I can understand why that would be the case. Although I will point out something else, which is that in addition to those early years, you mentioned where you were with the teams a lot. You also, like I've mentioned numerous times before, and I'll say again, you've written books where you've gone in depth with specific people, like for example, Terry Francona in terms of, in terms of like, you know, getting stuff like that to get out of them, you know? Yeah. The Francona thing, I mean, you know, eight years, he was the manager and we, we weren't close at all. And then he got fired and he saw, he came around to seeing me as an, as an ally and we became partners Mm -hmm. and in that enterprise, he was very vested in that. So that's his book, but I was the narrator. I told the story. So we would interview and then I would tell the story in my words, Mm -hmm. third party narrator, but it was what he wanted out there. So there was a lot of trust there. And that was a very, there was a lot of soul bearing there. And, um, but nothing got published that he didn't sign off on because it was his story. So yeah, that, that was an instance, but we were, that was a business partnership and it required that level of, of uh, soul bearing and, and depth and him saying how he really felt about the owners. And he was careful. He didn't want to burn any bridges. And now he's been managing in Cleveland for eight years. And he didn't want to burn bridges with A-Rod or Jacoby Ellsbury or, anybody jd drew i mean he, he was careful um but i knew how he felt about everything by the time we did that book so that that did happen and then when i was young you know i'd be out with i, I spent quite a bit of time with with like larry bird and danny ainge and those guys and I, I really did get to know them i feel and i just did a book on my years covering the larry bird celtics and it's got a lot of that it's just the access that we had and we could tell the readers what they were like. And, and so that's what I've done in that book. Everybody's writing books during the pandemic. So that that's my little contribution. And, um, but it does, it does show a level of 
of trust and uh, closeness that the guys covering the team today aren't going to have with Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum or they just, they can't get near him. And that's pre pandemic. They still couldn't get near him. Now it's just the moat, you know, but, but compared to the seventies and eighties, when we were traveling and living with them, we did get near them and, and we were able to tell you what they were like. Yeah, no. And I guess actually the next question I'll ask, um, I'll kind of, I'm going to kind of propose a, propose a hypothetical here and ask, you know, in those moments where guys like Francona came up to you and asked if you'd be willing to co-write this book with them, what do you think, what do you believe were the factors for people like them and just any other athlete who's made something like this public? What do you think is, what do you think of the factors that contribute to them making something like this public, you know, because it can't be easy, I imagine. Well, the Francona thing, it was, it was, pretty much strictly business. And it was, uh, there were emotions at play there. He was kind of fired, you know, he averaged 95 wins. He won two world series and it was, wasn't really good at the end. And then they kind of did dirty on the way out the door. They revealed his Percocet abuse and his broken marriage. And that kind of got him hot at them. And he knew that they didn't like me and I didn't like them too much. So I became, plus I have a very good literary agent who had done the Joe Torrey book with Tom Verducci and the Yankee years. So it was kind of a parallel there. Well, he could bring me on and, and do for, for him what Verducci and my agent did for Joe Torrey, just get his story out there the way he wants it, frame it from his years, the Yankees, the Yankee years by Torrey and the Red Sox years by Francona. So I was a, I was useful to him in that sense. And he also knew that I was smart. I had a good agent. I knew baseball. I knew his dad. And, um, you know, I think, and plus, and he knew the Sox would be, that would make them nervous if I worked with him. So, but it, it wasn't, <laughs> any, it wasn't like we had this great relationship prior to the book. Cause it was, he was very wary to, to engage until he got really mad at the Red Sox. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, it's like, usually stuff like this does not come out, you know, over the course of time, naturally it's yeah. oftentimes sparked by something specific in this case for Francona it was the whole ordeal that ended yeah. his tenure with the Red Sox. So I can understand why that led him to somebody like you, no less, who until then he had basically opposed for his entire tenure. So I can understand why um, yeah. that, that makes it all come together, honestly, in a very fluid and, you know, productive way. So yeah, I, it worked I, out really well. That was, that, that's a good book. And you know, it yeah. came out good for everybody. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so I guess now I'll, um, sort of um, focus a little bit more on you specifically and the way you write. And first of all, no, you're obviously known for being very pointed in your assessments of professional athletes. And I would imagine you pride yourself in addition to being that way as being fair, you know, like you said, being neutral instead of being negative, um, even though a lot of people perceive it to be that right. way. Um, and obviously a lot of what you um, write depends on the circumstances. Um, but I would also, I guess, ask another hypothetical here and ask if an athlete um, revealed to you that they struggled with something like anxiety or ADHD or depression or whatever, would that impact how you thought about them or how you even wrote about them in your column? I think, um, first of all, it's it, almost impossible for that to happen now, but I think if it did, um, I think Yes, I think it would. I would probably be softer on 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 the thing because I mean, ultimately, it is only sports and it's it's recreation, it's entertainment, 
It's not, you know, it's not a political topic. It's not war. It's not religion. It's not race. It's not, it's just sports performance. And if a guy, you know, I mean, if a guy were like quitting on his team or just, you know, being a jackass, it probably wouldn't have any effect there, but a guy not performing well and, and expressing those kinds of anxieties, I'd, I'd go easier on, I think, I think just because there's just no need, but you, you can measure the effort. It's like, we don't cover high schools or colleges the same way we do pros. I mean, you know, a kid misses a free throw, lose a high school game. You don't even put his name in there. You just say somebody missed because there's no need to embarrass anybody. And, and you don't boo the, the college quarterback. It's just like, sorry. But at the pro level, go ahead and boo away and they're getting paid for it and they're big boys and they can take it. So, but, but yeah, if there's personal anxieties or whatever, and that, that's been expressed in a private way, I'd maybe rather not know, but I'd be, I'd, I would. I think it's only human to be a little more forgiving. Yeah. Yeah, no. And I mean, I know you said it's a lot harder today, but there have obviously still been moments where athletes have out of almost nowhere, you know, revealed something deeply personal. Now it may not be something I just described, but it still matters to how they're, how they've been performing lately. And I, and I think at the same time, you know, if somebody like you were to hear that it's important to know what the columnist or the writer is thinking in a moment like that. And I guess I would also just kind of follow up quickly on what you just answered right there and just ask like, how exactly would you try and phrase that, put them in a different light maybe than maybe you had in the past? Because like, let's say for example, this guy you had until now been criticizing like crazy for the way he's been playing it all. And now you find out this, you know, what, what do you think you would have changed specifically and how you would have uh, wrote about them? Yeah. It's usually not criticizing the way they play as much as, if, if they're demonstrating traits that, you know, like they're being selfish, mm-hmm. they're, they're not good to the fans, not good to the support staff, you know, just jerking people around, just, you know, being dicks or something that I'm just not, I tend to go be harsher on those guys than somebody who's just, sometimes you feel sorry for a guy like that, that guy, Chris Davis with the Orioles. Now he makes all that money. I, I, what's the, what's the point of just hooting on him any further? I mean, he's trying, he's making the money and I just, I, I can't see getting on that. It's, it's more when you think that they're not taking care of themselves. They're not trying. They're, they're in denial of, of what's going on or they're being jackass to their teammates. I go after that way more than just somebody, you know, the guy goes over 12 from the floor, you know, shooting, you know, it's like, you can, you, you, you certainly mention that, but there's no sense in hammering away. What gets to be awkward is if someone like goes into a long slump and they just keep, and you know, it's a mental thing, or if a guy's got the yips, he's throwing the ball into the dugout and he's, it's cause he's thinking about it. That can get to be cruel. There's just no need to keep piling on about that. I mean, we know, you know, you say what you're seeing, but, and, and sometimes you don't want to ask a guy about it because you're just contributing to the problem. And, um, and it's obvious what it is. It's, it, it's a mental thing. I don't even cover golf, but that would be an area if someone's got the yips or the putting and all that. I just, yeah, I, there's been times you just more feel bad for a guy than, than, um, than just continue to harp on how badly he's doing. That's not necessary. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it's like, you know, like you said, there's no point in getting at somebody if, you know, he's simply just 
struggling with, you know, hitting a bat, hitting a baseball or yeah. making a shot in basketball. It's like, you know, those things happen. It's, it's not necessarily yeah. a knock against them as it is just bad luck in a sense. Sure. But, you know, obviously if there are clear signs that they've been, that they've been struggling forever or something's really getting to them, that's affecting them when they play, you know, it's like, that's something worth pointing out, you know, now maybe I, unlike you would have done it a little differently, but that's no criticism to yeah. you. And, you know, it's just like the, it's a, it's a case where it's like, you know, we mentioned how this is such a delicate topic that is, you know, while gotten easier, it's still tough to talk about. It's like, you know, obviously you really, as a result, don't know what's the right way to do it each and individual time. So, and I guess um, I'll kind of build off of that a little bit. And first of all, note that um, you've been a journalist for over 40 years and a lot has changed, including, you know, the awareness has changed about mental health, the attitudes, um, the technology and the relationship between the athletes and journalists. You know, obviously we talked about a lot of this beforehand anyway, but I'll just bring it up again now. And, and, and now I'll ask in light of all those changes, you know, and you've been probably one of the biggest um, noticers of it because it's affected you probably the most. Um, I would ask now, do you believe there's a greater opportunity to further deepen the conversation about mental and emotional health in sports? Oh, sure. I mean, it, we've seen, um, we've seen oh, through the years, again, having coaches around that are strictly around for, for mental health. I mean, there's guys dedicated to that. That never used to exist. Or if they did, nobody would admit the guy was there for that. Or nobody admit that he goes to him and talks to him, you know, whatever. So, yeah, I think that that's sort of a, you know, cutting edge area that has, you know, the visualization, the focus, the things that people do uh, in a mental way. And, and some of these games, I mean, baseball and golf, too, in particular, it's really mental. Uh, so much of the performance to it. Um, it it's like. Baseball and golf are two sports where trying harder doesn't generally make you better. It usually makes you worse. Whereas in football or basketball, trying harder can have results. The physicality of it, you can get right. benefits to that, but almost never in, in baseball or golf, or probably tennis for that matter. But it's just the notion of trying harder is not going to yield results in most cases. You just got to let it come to you and slow it down, that sort of thing. So. I think this has been demonstrated. And, and again, if you look at major league baseball players, those guys, the skill levels, it's not always this, this some giant disparity, the guys who make it, the guys who don't, it's really the guys who are able to, to harness the thoughts and, and not, not get eaten up by a slump or the yips or not find the strike zone or whatever, and just, just focus. And sometimes people that are, not quite as deep intellectually are better at the games. And I, you know, and I thought, always thought that about Manny Ramirez. I don't think Manny's a stupid guy, but I think that he just had uh, almost no short-term memory or didn't give a shit. You know, when, when he came up to the plate, it was never, oh, this guy owns me. He struck me out the last three times. He either couldn't remember or he just didn't care. Mm -hmm. And it was always a clean sheet of ice and a fresh let's start over thing see the ball, hit the ball. And there's beauty in that because the guys who are thinking too much, it's not helpful for the most part with very, very few exceptions. So yeah, I, it's just, 
you know, my son was a good example of that. I mean, he, he did not have the mental makeup to, to advance. I think his, his skill set uh, superseded uh, the mental makeup that would have required that. And he would, he would admit to that, you know, because he did let the slump eat him up and think about it too much and get out of his routines and all that stuff like that. And most guys do. It's the same thing with golf. Those golfers, you know, when you're on the putting green, it's everybody can hit the ball from here to there. It's not a strength and question. It's a question of just hitting it correctly and, and doing something mentally uh, to make that happen. So I, that game's that game's nutty. I, I just can't imagine the, the mind-blowing aspects of that game. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, it's interesting, actually, because right now they're having the final round of the Masters. Right. And as it stands, there's this guy who I've never heard of <laughs> and who's representing a country that, let alone, has never had a guy right. ever lead at the Masters. Yeah, so, uh, you know? yeah I'm with you. All of, everything you just said, I, I second that. I, I don't no, haven't heard of him and haven't watched and good luck to him. <laughs> yeah, really. And, but I mean, it's like right now, as far as I know, he's got a four stroke lead in the final round. So it's like it speaks to the proof that, you know, a sport like golf or a sport like baseball, in reality, anybody can do it. The question is, you know, how good is their mental mindset? It's like, are they willing to not let, you know, bad shots or, you know, strikeouts get to them? You know, it's like, they just can't let that get under their skin and just move on to the, to the next uh, chance. And at the same time, just know that, you know, this is not something that's necessarily that hard to do. The question is, right. do they have it within them, you know, to take the steps necessary to do it? Yeah. Because it's like you mentioned, once you get in a slump, most guys get out of routine. They start skipping steps. Oh yeah. If you skip those steps, you know, it's like the whole thing doesn't work then. It's like, you're not, ne- you're not going to get the result you want right. at the same time. And I guess I'll quickly follow up in a sense, uh, follow up with a sensical question here, which is like, how, like, why do you think I, I here? I got it actually. Why do you think there are certain players like Manny Ramirez, for example, but also others who were able to be so good at sports, specifically like baseball, maybe Tiger Woods in golf, for example? Why do you think they were able to be so good at sports like this for so long? Well, I mean, some of that's God given, and but taking care of yourself, I mean, you know, not getting into bad habits with your diet or mm-hmm. smoking or you know, pharmaceuticals that could, you know, staying up too late, all the things that are, that are bad for business. The younger athletes seem better at that than the guys when I was younger, you know, I think careers could have lasted longer. Guys didn't take as good a care of themselves as they do now. Um, but yeah, there's so much money in it and it's such a gift to get to that level that guys will do a lot to hang, to keep it going and to hang on. They're smarter about it and they have good agents and they have, people looking after them, their diets and, and, you know, taking care of their taxes and just all the things that they need. So I think the support is better is the money's so good. And it's, it's so critical. Um, and just habits are better. I mean, the, the athletes that I see take better care of themselves than the ones that I grew up around, you know, in terms of late hours, drinking, carousing, all that stuff. I just think maybe it's cause I don't know, they're, they're just not as, uh, they're more risk averse today, I would say less reckless by and large. Yeah, no, I mean, obviously you talk about the greatest athletes ever. They were always the ones who are either the most dedicated to their craft or just were the most responsible with it at the same time. You know, you talk about, you know, a guy like, um, I'll just say LeBron James, like in basketball, he, 
he, well, obviously he's very athletic. Um, at the same time, the fact that he's been able to take care of his body oh, yeah. for so long is the reason he's kept being so good at that. And then, yeah. you know, you talk about, you know, a guy like, uh, gosh, I'm trying to think of a good baseball player here. Like, um, well, you know, Chad, like, yeah, go ahead. He could, that could go. He's just doing amazing things. We just wish he'd be in a better team, but right, you know, he's put together a body of work. that's pretty darn good. Right. Yeah. No. So it's like, as a result, you know, it's like the best players usually share the common trend of just like, you know, like you said, being responsible, being dedicated, all that kind of stuff. And I guess actually I'll, I'll sort of ask a, an opposite question, which I ironically feel like you'll probably have a better time answering just because this is kind of what you do, which is why do you think there are so many guys who don't, you know, have, uh, have this success, you know? Well, it's just so hard to, to get there and to sustain it. And some guys are just so good. You know, I think, you know, like Trout or Bryce Harper or, you know, um, Soto kid with the Nationals now. You see these young players, they're just they're so talented. Um, but will they last? And, and some don't. And you go, to, you go to Cooperstown, you see who lasted. You know, Frank Thomas lasted. Cal Ripken lasted. You know, guys who Yastrzemski lasted. And Griffey lasted, but um, there were a lot of guys who were on that, you know, Nomar didn't last, you know, I mean, and it's injuries, you know, with him, maybe, maybe steroids got in the way. I mean, there's certainly a possibility. There's a path there that's a little suspicious and because he was every bit, he was better than Jeter and, and Jeter's in the hall of fame and he's not. And yep. it's just, uh, so it, it didn't last for him. And there's guys that just have these meteoric starts and, and, and don't last. And then a game like football, it's just, you know, the running backs, they never last. It's just the, the position just grinds them out and spits by the time they're 27 or eight, they're used up. Yep. You just don't get guys playing into their mid thirties, you know, carrying the ball. So it's, it's a function of the position that they play. And now with the quarterback position, it's gone the other way where they're so protected and they're playing arena ball and, and no one touches them. And they take great care of themselves and Brady's doing what he's doing, but you know, Breeze did it. If, if Stafford decides to stick around, he'll, he'll break all their records. I mean, it just depends on how the motivation to keep going. And then that's, that's curious to me what it would be when you're Tom Brady's age. I don't know what that's about, he's a freak, <laughs> you know, but why would you keep doing that? You know, right. there's, there's nothing else to prove. I just, you know, to me, that's just, that's just ego. I don't understand it. You know, there's just no need for it, but good for him. Yeah, no, I mean, in fairness, nobody does, but at the same time, you still got to smile at the fact that he's able to do it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because at the same time, it's like, well, I don't get why he's doing it at the same time. I could never do that. Uh, he and must just believe that. I, mean, I, be, I do believe he thinks he's bulletproof and that there's no risk. Um, but that sport would seem to have inherent risk and given all the blessings that he has right now, it's just, I just see no need to, to keep yeah. doing this, but good for him. He, I, you know, he wants to set records that will never be broken and, and play till an age that no one's ever going to do again. So maybe he'll do that. And in fairness too, I, I think another thing that's kept him going for so long is actually a nod to him here is he's not afraid of failing per se. Like he's not afraid of suddenly getting knocked out. You know, that doesn't, that doesn't scare him because obviously if it did, if it did scare him, he'd probably retire right now. So yeah, why wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's like the fact of the matter is you also have to recognize that. And I guess recognize the same thing too when it comes to these baseball players like Cal Ripken, who played forever, you know, where it's a case where they 
you know, we're not afraid of failing or suddenly turning around and becoming one of the, the biggest chokers ever, you know? Right. Well, Pujols is a good example out there. You got him because, you know, he's on the downslide. He's not what he was. But I think he's, you know, the money's really good and, and he's, he's, he's getting his home run total up, you know, to the top five or six. And that probably means something to him. But there's a lot of days when it's got to be a little bit embarrassing, whatever you call it, given the level that he could play at and where he is now. Yeah, no, I mean, again, this is, this is simply just a case where it's like the interesting thing too, is at both the quarterback position and just in baseball in general, it's often a case where you can actually control how long you go, yeah. you know, because it's like, this isn't necessarily a mental or physical toll on right. your body. It's just a question of how long, how best you can handle it, you know, and that Uh-oh. will determine how long you go and how it's very easy to be good at one point and then be terrible at the next point too you just right. never know you know like you point out a guy like jd jd martinez for example well he's not bad per se right now he's not what he was so and at the beginning of his career he wasn't that good either but he turned right. into a great player so i think that's just another point as to and not actually to all these great players who were able to maintain their excellence forever they did not let what gets to most guys get to them. So, and I guess I'll move on here and ask you this next question, which is that, and I'll first say this, which is that one of the reasons I started this podcast was because sports had a huge positive effect on me because for me, my, my, my deal here is that I deal with some autism issues. Well, not issues, challenges. And because sports has been so affected to me, I wanted to give back by discussing these topics more openly and letting younger athletes know that might be struggling with these types of conditions. Let them basically let them know that it's okay to talk about them. Just like, I think athletes like Kevin Love, Michael Phelps, Paul George are all doing, you know, you talk about guys like them, they've been very open about what they've struggled with, you know, for Pete's sake, Kevin Love was awarded, I think the Arthur uh, Ashey award for courage, uh, like last year for his openness on, uh, his struggles with mental health. So there's a lot to um, admire at in that sense. And I guess I would ask, you know, it's the, the athletes obviously have, have one role in this for themselves, given the fact that they're the ones who talk about this stuff, you know, because it's what they deal with or their family deals with whatever that affects their play on the court as a result. But I would ask you specifically as a journalist, what do you think, if there is one, what do you think the role of journalists is in a, in a situation like this? where they play, where they should play a supporting role in these athletes in order to talk about these issues, you know, whether it's co-writing a book or just writing about them in a more positive way. Well, I'm not sure exactly what you're asking, but I would say that I never considered it my, my job, my role to support any of them. You know, we're, we're there to cover them mm-hmm. and to tell the readers, you know, hopefully inform and entertain the readers it's sports but uh and you know i think there's probably a do no harm aspect to it but at the same time i don't see myself in any type of supportive role for the people Mm -hmm. that i cover well i guess i would um just then quickly follow up and ask like when you were i'll go back to frank conner for example what role did you feel when you were writing the book with him well again that in that case we're we're business partners Mm-hmm. And he is the uh, controlling partner in mm-hmm. terms of this product is going to 
to reflect on his life and and i'm i'm helping him tell the story of his life mm-hmm. so that's a partnership and my role is determined there but that's not my journalism hat that's mm-hmm. my author hat and hired gun hat and that's what that is and that had to be separated if he were still managing the red sox i couldn't do that i'd have to disqualify right. myself from one or the other in that instance he was no longer a manager of any major league team he was out of work he was working for ESPN, so he was in. He was a journalist at that time, technically, mm-hmm. and I was a journalist. So we were two journalist partners in this enterprise. And yeah, when you're a business partner of a guy and you're telling his story, that's easy. You're supportive, and this because he's gonna. It's gonna be his version of, of his life, and that's my mm-hmm. role is to do that. So that, but that is com- really it's independent of. I can't think of anything analogous in my life's work to that project where I did a book with a guy. And we were business partners. I don't have anything remotely close to that that I can think of over the, okay. over the term of it. Yeah. All right. That's fine. I guess I would um, then quickly propose yet another hypothetical here and sure. say, if if all of a sudden athletes started coming to you asking for you to help them share this part of their life where they they struggle with a mental health issue or whatever, you know, how would you respond to something like that? Well, yeah, if if one of the Celtics or Sox or somebody said, you know, I've really got this thing. I'd like, then I think, you know, you're doing a sort of a public service. You're serving the readers mm-hmm. and you're letting this guy tell his story. And it's probably going to be help, cathartic for him and helpful for him. And you're serving the population to tell them what's going on with these guys. Maybe there's a depth to them that you aren't aware of that he's going through something you're not aware of. So you are informing your readers of his situation and certainly would be a sympathetic angle on it. Um, but you're not going to like drive a pipe through the guy while you're supporting, you know, him coming to you with this, this uh, thing. So, yeah, I think in that instance, it's like, that's a good get. You've got an athlete who's willing to, to open up and tell his, his story and bear his soul, whatever, and, and deal with issues that are somewhat complex and not generally touched upon. So, I think, again, in that, you're, you're the journalist. You're, you're doing the role of a journalist to inform your readers, and you're informing them. You know, you're taking them inside this guy's world, inside his head, and what's going on. And I guess it is supportive, but, but you're able to do those things simultaneously because you're, you're doing your job, which is to inform the readers and, serve, and you know, kind of open people's minds to ways of thinking about things. And that's, that's, that's not advocating as much as it's just educating yeah no i mean obviously in in a situation like this there's so many ways you can look at it both as the athlete and as the journalist so obviously i won't i won't um i won't take back my opinion of you in any way because of that (laughs) so um and i totally get where you're coming from at the same time you know it's like you're right a journalist's job is to inform the readers of what this athlete is talking about here so it's like it's really nothing more than that but at the same time if you can be helpful in this way Sure. Consider yourself this. It's, it's, a win, like, it's a win-win. Exactly. It's a win-win. Um, and I guess um, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of wrap this up here and ask you the question that I finish all my interviews with that I feel speaks uh, the most value to what it is we've talked about over the course of this hour and just, you know, what we think, you know, the readers and viewers here today, ironically, would uh, be best um, informed to know. And I'll ask um, the question in the context of this. You talked about how there was a stigma back then 
when you were growing up and how it would sure. be a lot harder to talk about this stuff. Obviously, while that stigma has deteriorated as more and more people have been open to talk about stuff like this, that stigma still exists. And at the same time, there are people maybe who just don't know about this stuff at the same time, just because it's so complex in and of itself. And so my question is that, um, in relation to all of this, basically, is that if there was anything you wanted people to know in regards to the topic of um, people, in, namely athletes or even coaches, who play or coach sports, you know, at the highest level, um, who deal with um, mental health issues in whatever way, shape, or form, what do you think you want anybody listening or watching this today? What do you think you you want them to know most about these athletes? and these coaches? Well, I think it's good if we can all remember that, you know, they're people with the same problems that, that we all have, even though they, they're more famous, they have more money, they're probably more fit. You know, they, they just, they look better than all of us, but they still carry around, you know, it's the old money can't buy happiness thing. They still carry around, you know, the baggage and, and the things that, that, that regular folks who don't have all those accoutrements uh, that have and, and try to remind yourself of that before you start booing the guy or get on him. Again, in Boston, I, I really feel like our fans, they, they get on guys for, it's more behavioral than performance. If a guy is being selfish, not being a good teammate, not trying, lazy, flipping off the fans, whatever, but generally just a bunch of strikeouts. I'm more forgiving of that. And I think the, the fans by and large are too. So that's what I would remind fans to. And again, this may sound, you know, it sound funny because a lot of people think I'm hard on, on the players, but I generally just go on guys misbehavior or attitude or not owning up to their, their portion of, of, of the player contract, which is to, you know, take be at their hundred percent peak and, and effort. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when a guy's just struggling, I find it relatively easy to go easy on that. But again, remind remind the readers that they're people and you know needn't be scorned for not performing. Yeah, every no, time. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. You know, again, it it just speaks to the fact that you know this isn't necessary. A lot of things that happen aren't necessarily stuff that needs to be held against anybody just because it's part of the game but you know at the same time there are certain things which you are very good at finding ironically that you can hold them accountable for yeah and so obviously that's the the key in a situation like this and ironically i think it's why you're so good at what you do not a lot of people can distinguish what's good to go after and what's good to let go so uh i'll applaud you for that as well and i guess i'll um ask one more question um here before we close and ask is there anything um, you're left thinking um, or feeling or wondering as a result of our conversation today? And is there anything else that you feel could be addressed on this podcast or just on your column, for example, that might be helpful to these other athletes who have yet to reach the highest level, but could um, are looking for something useful that could maybe help them get there or if they're destined to get there, stay there? Well, I think that, you know, this brings out the reporter in me, 
when you asked that question and what's going through my mind and, you know, this would be me turning the tables on you and maybe you not liking it as much, but like, like, like for starters, how old are you? I'm 17. Okay. So in what, what level of education are you at? Where are you? I'm a junior in high school. And, you know, so, you know, <laughs> what I would say is, um, I, I'm very impressed by this interview and your questions and your way of thinking and, you know, uh, whatever, <laughs> whatever issues um, with uh, the spectrum or autism, you know, they're not going to hold you back. <laughs> I can see this because there's a lot of value with what you're doing. And, uh, and I think it's, I think it's going to play really well for you. So I'm enthused about the future for you. And I think that you're onto something here and, and I wish you luck with the programming. I just think that you're really, this is, this is good stuff. And I think there's, uh, there's going to be an audience for it. And I think it's, it's great topics and you should, I mean, I hope you stay with it because we need good young people in the field, whether it's broadcast or, or, you know, writing. I mean, I'd love to, you know, like that thing when you were talking about with the golfers and, you know, you said something like everybody can do it, like the whole golf process, like to hit the putts, whatever. And it's, it's not, you know, you have a way of verbalizing that, that I think is, is unique and good. And I would, I'd like to see the writing of that. So, cause I'm, I'm all about the printed word and all that stuff, but no, I think so this, this makes me, it stimulates me to thinking that there's, there's smart young people out there that are going to, that are going to carry this on with what we're trying to do and, and to do it better and to be more thoughtful and, and to make things better um, moving forward for everybody. Well, thank you for all that, Dan. You know, I honestly don't know if I consider myself that same way, but like you said, I don't necessarily have to because if yeah. others think of me that way, it's a win-win. No, so it's really good. And I'm not blowing smoke. I'm, it's again, it's a very stimulating conversation. I'm glad we had it. And yeah, but I, I think that, I think you're onto something, like I said. Yeah, no, I mean, I certainly did when I started this. So to see somebody like you agree means everything to me and I applaud you. And I had a great time talking with you as well. And so I guess I'd like to just close and say, Dan, thank you so much for being with us today, sharing your insights, sharing your stories with our audience. I think we would love to have you come back at some point soon and tell us some more and just, again, just give us the old good Dan Shaughnessy vibe we all love. So well, it's um, been a pleasure and I wish you luck with the program right. with your career and your schooling and all that stuff. All right. Well, thank you, Dan. I really appreciate it. And I'd also like to thank all of our subscribers and listeners for joining us today. If you'd like to see more great content, then please go to our website at www.sportsonthespectrum.net. And then for all of you, please remember the three rules of life, which are stay safe, have fun, get dirty. And I will see you all on the next episode of Sports on the Spectrum. So I'm Keegan Plugner now saying so long.